Matthew chapter 10, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. As I said before, we sang that song and this, the previous two songs, both the one Kiana blessed us with as well as this song, prepares us well for our text this morning. It's a text that really asks us to answer the question, a question that's a hard one to answer, if we're to be honest with ourselves, but to ask and answer the question, am I prepared for suffering and persecution? Am I prepared for suffering and persecution? For much of the world, this is far from hypothetical. If we're honest, I think we realize the, the extent and the type of persecution that Christians in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa face is far different than what most of us have or may ever face. It doesn't mean we don't have persecution, but we need to rightly recognize how light most of the persecution we face is compared to so much of the world at this time. That may change one day. And yet, when I look at the response of much of the Western church in light of this current light persecution, if you will, it makes me question whether we are really prepared for suffering and persecution. And when we talk about being prepared, it's not merely a matter of knowing that it may come or knowing that there is persecution in this life, but it's thinking through, how am I going to respond? Reminding myself of the reason that persecution comes. And reminding myself, as we've done in the songs we've sung this morning, of the motivation to get us through persecution. What is it that we look forward to? Where is our hope? Jesus knew the importance of preparing his disciples and apostles for persecution. That's why so much of this first commissioning in chapter 10 deals with the topic of persecution. But this is far from the only time or last time Jesus discusses the topic. And the apostles themselves and their writings throughout the rest of the New Testament deal extensively with the topic of suffering and persecution. These words Jesus spoke to his apostles and disciples so many years ago are just as pertinent today in helping us to rightly prepare to prepare any true disciple for suffering and persecution. So with that said, read along with me as we read Matthew chapter 10, beginning of verse 16 through verse 25. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. 
it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the member of his household? Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word to study together this morning, as we contemplate the warnings, the admonition, and even the encouragement regarding the suffering and persecution to come, Father, help us to rightly contemplate this and to begin preparing, setting our minds, setting our hearts on how we will and should respond in the midst of suffering and persecution, however light, however difficult it may be in our lives and in our experiences. Father, in all of this, help us to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In your name, amen. Last week, in the text we began looking at, which is the first half of what we just read, Jesus began to expand the instructions to look beyond the immediate mission to Galilee that he was sending these 12 apostles on to even the future ministry of the apostles after his death and resurrection when they would go out to other areas of the world. We see this with the testimony to the Gentiles. This would include other disciples as well as they were ultimately brought before governors and kings to defend their faith and ultimately suffer imprisonment, beatings, and death. Additionally, we began to see the expansion and the application of these instructions to all disciples of Jesus Christ. And these expanded instructions are presented in the context of warning and comfort. As we noted last week, there's here in these verses two sets of warnings and comfort. And it's that second set of warnings and comfort to which we turn our attention this morning. And again, as a reminder, these warnings look beyond this immediate mission to Galilee. They anticipate trials and tribulations that come throughout the rest of the lives of these disciples and apostles, and they apply to all true disciples of Jesus Christ. We saw last week how Paul's instructions to the churches echo these same instructions that Jesus provides. This morning, as we pick back up in verse 21, we see an escalation of the coming suffering and persecution beyond what was presented in the verses we looked at last week. It moves now from persecution by strangers to persecution by family members. It moves from the persecution itself intensifying from scourgings and imprisonment to death. And so we see this heightening, this intensification of the persecution itself. In verse 21, that term betray is pregnant with meaning. This is the same term that was used back in verse 4. It was used there to describe the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. By using this same term for betrayal, Matthew is drawing for the reader the connection of a faithful disciple and the betrayal they will experience through these sufferings and these persecutions to the betrayal of the Savior. What he's doing is identifying the faithful disciple with the suffering of the Savior. He's priming faithful disciples in that the coming betrayal that they will experience matches the betrayal of Jesus, and their sufferings, therefore, are no worse than what their Savior has endured. In other words, you are not alone, you are in good company. The same term was used last week in verses 17 and 19 to describe the persecutions and the betrayal by the Jewish and Gentile leaders. But now, now it's happening from the least expected source, 
from family members, from those closest to you. As Morris notes, there can be no greater breakdown of family and society than what is portrayed here. This type of betrayal is portrayed throughout the scripture as the epitome of wickedness. Whether it's Abel's murder at the hand of Cain back in Genesis 4, or Joseph's imprisonment and being sold into slavery by his brothers, or whether it was David being betrayed by his own son, Absalom, we see the heightened wickedness and the heightened pain by the betrayal of family. I've read stories in recent weeks and months of the same betrayal today. This is not a hypothetical of family members turning on those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. In one account, it's a wife who, upon her husband's conversion, poisons his food, causing his death. She's celebrated and applauded by that particular Muslim community. Some religious cultures hold a funeral upon the conversion of a family member to Christianity, saying that they are now dead to them. There are stories of zealous Muslims or Hindus killing family members in what they would call honor killings, including children or siblings because they brought dishonor on the family by converting to Christianity. And while it may be difficult for us to imagine such hatred and zeal by one's own father, mother, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, niece, or nephew, this is neither rare nor uncommon in modern history or in the history of the world. This type of betrayal and persecution is shocking. It could easily rattle or shake the faith of one who is not prepared for this. So how do you prepare for something this, like this? Something so shocking, so unexpected, something that broadsides you, coming from your own family. Well, verse 22 provides the answer, but before he gives us the answer in the second half of the verse, Jesus reiterates that this persecution can come from anyone and anywhere. Verse 22 describes the intense hatred that exists, which leads to persecution and death. The by all there, you will be hated by all, does not mean everyone, but rather all types of persons. Again, from families to friends to neighbors to leaders to strangers. But it also implies that it will be a much greater majority of those who hate you for your faith than those who love you. Doesn't mean there will be none. You're surrounded now by those who love you in the faith, but the great majority of the world will hate you. In fact, be careful if you look around and are widely loved by the world. Doesn't mean you're purposely antagonistic, but rather you should be hated in spite of your good behavior toward the world. Should almost be as shocking because you've done everything right and they hate you. John returns to this topic, or Jesus returns to this topic later in his ministry, and John notes this. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But rather, you are not of the world. That is, you are not like the world any longer. But I chose you out of the world, and because of the, this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Note also the reason for the hatred. This is extremely important. Why 
are you hated? Why are you persecuted? And why do you suffer? Because of my name. This goes back to what we just said about being persecuted in spite of our good behavior. If persecution is to come and it is to be blessed, it must be for the right reason. Not all suffering, not all persecution is good and godly persecution. Be careful about anything in your life that invites persecution or suffering for any other reason. Do not assume because things are hard, do not assume because people hate you that you've done everything right. It is good to watch your life, to watch your conduct, because our job is to eliminate anything that could distract from the gospel so that the only reason someone is persecuting us and attacking us is because of Jesus' name. We want to give the world no other reason, no other excuse. In fact, persecution for any other reason is not godly suffering. Your pain and discouragement and loss in that case has no meaning, no eternal value. When you're suffering because of your sin or because of the way you've acted towards the world, it is justly earned. So be careful. Guard your life and your doctrine. Keep your behavior excellent among a watching world. Submit to your leaders insofar as they do not call upon you to actively sin against God. And if you must obey God rather than men, because there will be times for that, make certain it is done with grace and gentleness and a sense of sorrow for the persecutors. Too much of so-called suffering today as a Christian in our culture specifically is accompanied by arrogant and antagonistic attacks against unbelievers and leaders. All you have to do is peruse social media to see Christians arrogantly attacking their leaders, slandering them. It's a far cry from praying for them. Sometimes it's even bordering on taunting them. This often invites more and greater suffering. However, this increased persecution is not for the sake of Christ. But it's a consequence of sinful actions, and it's thus sinful suffering. You see, your suffering, my suffering, must not be a distraction from the gospel. If you make suffering about you and your rights, you have hidden the gospel from view. And your suffering is in vain, and it will be counted as wood, hay, and stubble in the day of judgment. So ensure that your suffering is because of the name of Jesus. You want that to be the litmus test. So again, we return to the question, how do I prepare for such hatred from family members and those around me and so much of the world? Well, the end of verse 22 begins to answer how we prepare for such agonizing persecution by family and friends. And quite simply, it's to remember the end goal. Remember why you suffer. We read that those who endure to the end will be saved. Saved here does not mean saved from suffering or death. Those often happen. Rather, it's to experience the blessings of salvation in eternity. That's what it means to be saved. Jesus includes this important reminder because none of us enjoys suffering. 
I don't think any of us long to suffer. Rather, there'll be a constant temptation to find some way of escaping the suffering, some way of escaping the persecution. And while there are appropriate times to flee persecution, there is a right and a wrong way to escape it. It's one thing to flee to another city, as we'll see in a moment, but it is quite another thing to escape by hiding or denying Christ, by recanting or altering the truth of the gospel. And it's this form of endurance that is in view here. Enduring by not rejecting, by not recanting, by not altering the gospel, by not shying away from presenting the gospel. To help illustrate this, the story of Thomas Cranmer, who is sometimes called the reluctant martyr, provides us with a helpful illustration of the internal struggle of enduring to the end. Especially when temporary relief from suffering and persecution is offered. Thomas Cranmer enjoyed his somewhat comfortable life of scholarship and leadership as he rose to the position of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Cranmer believed in reform in the Catholic Church. He lived during the time of Luther's fight against Rome and the Roman Catholic Church, but he was somewhat appalled by Luther because he believed reform could happen within the church, and he was horrified by Luther's separation from Rome initially. However, throughout Cranmer's life, he continued to be swayed more and more and further and further to the side of Protestantism and the true gospel. And while the Church of England was never wholly Protestant, it began leaning more and more that way during the reign of Henry VIII. However, near the end of Henry VIII's reign, the king issued six articles which declared that the position of the Church of England was still well and truly Catholic. By this time, Cranmer was convinced of the truth of the gospel and the Protestant position of the gospel, salvation by grace alone, mercy alone, scripture alone, through God alone. And so things got a little dangerous for Cranmer, who opposed these articles by the king, rejecting the claim of Catholicism. However, Henry and Thomas had gotten along throughout most of their life, and Henry was fond of Cranmer and tolerated his opposition. Shortly thereafter, Henry died, and his young son, Edward IV, took the throne. And Edward was a staunch Protestant, so Cranmer was safe for a time and began even more firmly espousing and entrenching himself in Protestant doctrine and teaching. However, six years later, Edward died and was ultimately succeeded by his half-sister, Mary, the daughter of Henry's estranged wife, Catherine. Mary, or as she came to be known, Bloody Mary, was responsible for a large number of deaths and executions of Protestants. She was a fervent Catholic and blamed Protestants for everything bad that had ever happened in her life. She particularly hated Thomas Cranmer for the part he played in her mother being estranged from Henry VIII. As a fervent Catholic, she replaced the English prayer book with the Latin Mass. Well, Cranmer objected. He stood up. He said, that's wrong, just like he had done against Henry VIII. However, this time he was immediately removed from office and imprisoned. And for three years, Mary sent Roman Catholic apologists to berate and attack and argue with Cranmer while he was in prison, depriving him of every comfort and luxury and just battering him and beating him and exhausting him. 
promising him that if he would just return to Catholicism, if he would just return to the roots of where he had started, he could return to his life of comfort, he could have freedom, he would be reinstated to his position, if he would simply deny the true gospel in favor of Catholicism. Eventually, in a desperate attempt to be free of prison and the harassment of his Catholic tormentors, Cranmer signed six statements recanting his Christian beliefs. He wanted the suffering to end. This was a tremendous victory for Mary to have the recantation of the highest Protestant official of England. However, her bloodlust was not satiated, and her hatred for Cranmer was intense, so even though she had his recantation, she still insisted on burning him at the stake. On the day of his scheduled death, Cranmer was granted a last request to preach and confess his sins. They expected him to affirm his recantation and wholeheartedly embrace Catholicism and confess his sins of taking up any Protestant position. So he was granted the opportunity to preach before a massive crowd. And yet, instead of affirming his recantation, he confessed his sins, including his sins of the denial of the true gospel. Recanting his recantation, if you would. And that day he preached to those large crowds of officials and rulers and others, and he was given an opportunity to present the clear gospel to many on that day. Strangely, they didn't interrupt him. They let him finish his sermon before he was led to the stake and burned. And as the fires were lit and were beginning to burn around him, he stretched out his right hand over the flames, the hand that had signed the recantation, those six articles. And he declared, as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first to be punished. Cramer perished that day. And though he faltered looking for escape from suffering, he recovered to prove himself faithful in the end. His life really does illustrate, I believe, the struggle of persevering to the end amidst suffering. Longing for relief, but looking for it in the wrong place. Though there are few in this country who have or will experience this type of persecution and the prospect of burning on a stake, we will still face temptation to look for an easy escape from the difficulties and the trials that we have, wanting some way out. Don't be deceived into exchanging momentary relief for eternal suffering. Instead, fix your eyes on the end goal. That's how you endure suffering. That's how you get through persecution, is by having your hope fixed and established on the end. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. We suffer so that we may be glorified. For I consider, he says in verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How do you get through suffering? You learn and study and understand what this glory is that is to be revealed. You look to the end. You look to the promises, to the hope of heaven. 
The writer of Hebrews encourages us to remember the end so that we might not grow weary in running this race of life. Saying at the beginning of Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do you do this? How do you endure? Looking to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we not grow weary and lose heart? By fixing our eyes on the Savior. How do I do this? How do, what does it mean to fix my eyes on him? How do I prepare to remain steadfast to the end? Well, first, begin by reminding yourself of the goal. The goal isn't to live as many years as you can on this life, to try to amass as much wealth as you can in this life, to have the happiest life possible. This life is but a blink in eternity. Instead, remind yourself of heaven. Study scripture. Note all that is promised to those who love the Lord. This is one of the reasons studies of eschatology or the end times is so important. Because they help us remember and focus on the end goal. If we neglect the study of the end times simply because it's hard and there are hard things to understand and we don't have every answer, we deprive ourselves of being able to look towards the hope of the end. And so we must study it. We must study the hope of heaven. We must study what is to come in eternity. Doesn't mean we'll have every answer, but we cannot neglect that study. To do so strips us of one of the most important tools for enduring. Now the question that naturally arises in the midst of suffering is if I am endured to the end, is it ever permissible to evade suffering? Is it ever permissible to try and escape persecution? And the answer is yes. Just not at the sake of your testimony. But sometimes it is wisest and necessary to preserve your life by fleeing to be able to continue proclaiming the gospel and living out the gospel. In verse 23, Jesus provides instruction to not persist unnecessarily in a situation of persecution. Persecution may be a certainty in this life, but when one finds themselves in a place hostile and filled with hatred, it is not mandatory to continue to offer oneself for maltreatment and death. You just don't escape it by denying the truth, by hiding the truth, by trying to look like those around you so that you endure or have a relief from suffering. As one commentator notes, it sometimes happens that there is more real heroism in daring to fly from danger than stopping to meet it. To stop and meet useless risks because one is afraid of being called a coward is one of the subtlest forms of cowardice. And the desire to be thought brave is not a high motive for a courageous action. In fact, we might call such a desire to be seen as brave, above all else, pride. As another commentator so succinctly put it, to needlessly court martyrdom is not the Christian way. I mean, Paul escaped over the side 
of a city wall in a basket. He was no coward. To seek to become a martyr for martyr's sake is again to make your suffering about you, not about Christ. To turn attention on yourself, not Christ. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying you're going to suffer. But when it comes, it's not outside what is permissible to flee. But you flee in order to continue proclaiming the gospel. In other words, the whole purpose of surviving and enduring and escaping is to continue proclaiming the gospel. If it's preservation of your life, it's the wrong motive. If it's preserving your life so you can continue proclaiming the gospel and living it out boldly in a new place, that's okay. You just don't look for relief from persecution through denial or rejection of Christ. Also, notice what else is implied by what is not said. You don't find safety. You don't respond to persecution by fighting or slandering those who are persecuting you. One of the things that grieves me in watching kind of our culture is watching Christians attack the very people and the authorities to whom they're supposed to be sharing the gospel. It's one thing to flee from persecution. It's quite another thing to attack the persecutors. Does not mean you don't point out sin. Doesn't mean you don't point out error. But be careful to come across as peaceable, not in anger. Be careful not to mock the very authorities God has established. I mean, look at the example of the apostles and the disciples in Acts and how they responded to authorities and persecutors. Think of Stephen, one of the earliest recorded martyrs. What did he do as he was being stoned to death? Was it to insult them? Was it to cry out for mercy? That was, he called out for mercy, but it wasn't for himself. He called out for mercy on them, on his persecutors, that God would have mercy on them. And you know who was standing in attendance holding the cloaks of everyone that day? It was Saul who became Paul, the apostle. God answered that prayer. Imagine if Stephen had not responded that way, had not prayed, had not suffered righteously, had instead responded in anger and antagonism. If social media is any indicator, we have a long way to go before we begin to emulate Stephen and how we respond to any level of persecution and suffering. According to verse 23, we are to continue preaching and proclaiming the gospel until the Son of Man comes. But notice that Jesus also returns the focus to Israel. The current mission they are being sent on is limited to the region of Galilee. We, we saw that back in verses 5 and 6. So even though the attention now returns to Israel, this isn't looking to that Galilean ministry. This is still looking to that expanded ministry, this later time of ministry. And the statement, until the Son of Man comes, is it's a difficult statement to interpret. The most agreed upon answer is that it's a reference to Jesus' return. But the question arises, when is this return? Some say that Jesus is implying that it would happen during the life of the apostles. So Jesus inadvertently made a mistake and his timing was off. I think most of us would reject that one offhand. Others have taken it symbolically to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And at that point, he was done with the nation of Israel and the cities of Israel. 
However, considering the reference to the Son of Man, which is not the first time this is found in Scripture, I think it's best to understand this in light of Daniel 7, which declares a time when the Son of Man comes. You can go and turn there in your Bibles. David has been taking the church through a study of Daniel. Here in Daniel 7, beginning in verse 9, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was ablaze with flames, and his wheels were burning, its wheels were burning fire, a river of fire flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were opened. Reading down to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I believe this reference here Echoes back to Daniel 7, to the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days, and the mediatorial kingdom that had been promised was now being handed over to him. Looking forward to a future time when this takes place, that the coming of the Son of Man is his return to establish the kingdom on this earth. In Daniel 7, this takes place after much suffering and tribulation. So it makes sense to find this reminder by Jesus, again in the context of suffering and tribulation, In fact, the return of the Son of Man is in part to bring an end to the suffering of the saints. If you have studied Revelation, or you may remember having read in there, you've you've got the saints in heaven saying, How long, O Lord? The martyrs of heaven crying out, How long, O Lord, before you avenge the blood of the saints? And so the coming of the Son of Man is in part to put an end to that in the establishment of the kingdom. But why the comment here about the cities of Israel? It almost seems out of place, doesn't it? What is Jesus saying? What I believe he's saying is that in spite of all that is to transpire before his return, the call for repentance to Israel does not cease. In other words, the compassion that motivated this initial call to ministry back in Matthew 9, looking over the dispirited, the distressed, the lost sheep of Israel, The compassion that motivated all of this will continue until that time. God is not done with Israel and will not be done with Israel until he returns to establish his kingdom on this earth. As one commentator notes, there will be a continuing mission to Israel alongside the mission to the Gentiles until the Son of Man comes, till the return of Christ. Despite Israel's hard-heartedness, God will remain faithful to his covenant promises to her. This statement is not just for Israel, though. For one, knowing that God is faithful to his promises to Israel gives us great confidence and hope in his promises to us. The use of the coming of the Son of Man is full of important Old Testament connotation about the kingdom and the promises of Messiah's reign. It returns us to that hope of the end 
that we looked at in verse 22. It reminds us of the end, of what is to come, of the coming kingdom. And this gives purpose and meaning. It reminds me of the salvation I am looking for, the hope I have, the reward that exceeds anything that this world can offer. And with this hope in view, Jesus returns to preparing the disciples for persecution. This time the emphasis is on those who think that they will somehow escape it or don't deserve it. Jesus is addressing all the disciples now in verse 24. You notice he says, a disciple. He's now making sure that anyone who calls himself a disciple of Jesus Christ is now included in this admonition, in this instruction. It still includes the 12 apostles, but it's been broadened. And he says, no disciple is above their teacher. No slave is above his master. Implying all should expect persecution. Just like John recorded for us when Jesus referred back to this very same commissioning later in his ministry. Now, why does Jesus have to reiterate this again? Hasn't he already told us that we're going to suffer? Hasn't he already said this and made this clear? Well, simply put, we think very highly of ourselves. We think we deserve better. We think we deserve to be well thought of. We think we deserve respect. We think we deserve you fill in the blank. Yet Jesus had none of these things. He was a man who was despised, hated, stricken. One of the great travesties of our culture is the sense of entitlement that exists, not only in this world, but in the church. And yet it could not be further from what the character of a Christian should look like. A disciple of Jesus Christ should have no sense of entitlement whatsoever, but consider themselves as a slave to Christ, and by extension, a slave to every one of them around them. Meaning my desires, my opinion, my wants, my rights come last. Paul, writing of the attitude of Christ in Philippians 2, says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now think about that for a second. If you are to regard every other person as more important than yourselves, then you are last. We each consider ourselves as very last. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in that appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We demonstrate ungodly arrogance whenever we expect to be given better treatment than our master Jesus Christ received. We are far too easily offended. We are far, we far too easily think highly of ourselves. That's our natural inclination that we need to continually fight against. So what's the solution? How do we avoid this entitlement? that thinks we don't deserve persecution. In fact, we think far quite the opposite, that we deserve anything but persecution. Well, verse 25 begins to get to the answer. That term enough there at the beginning of verse 25 highlights our need to learn contentment. We should not seek to have more than Jesus had, to be thought more of 
as better than Jesus or more well of Jesus than the world thought of him. In fact, our goal should be to look more and more like Christ, not Caesar. We're called to be imitators of Christ, not imitators of culture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And the final half of verse 25 sets our expectations really, really low with regard to how we are to expect the world to view us and treat us. However, it's also going to sound a little odd to our ears at first. Who is this Beelzebul? What does this mean? Well, one of the Philistine gods was called Beelzebub. It's a little bit different. You notice that it's not Beelzebul, it's Beelzebub. And it was a term that meant Lord of Flies. And it appears that the Jews corrupted this a little bit and made a pun out of it with Beelzebul, which means Lord of Dung. And it would have been a way of insulting that heathen deity, referring pejoratively to Beelzebub. It was likely that they took the name of that heathen deity so that they would interpret it contemptuously as Lord of Dung, and then they began to apply it to other evil beings. In time, it came to signify a very important demon, probably the being we refer to as Satan. And so you have here this reference to Satan or to demons and to evil beings being applied to Jesus himself. Not only have Jesus' enemies rejected him, it's one thing to reject someone, they now refer to him as being Satan incarnate. In fact, you saw allusions to that back at the end of chapter 9 and 934 where the Pharisees were saying he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So why does Jesus bring this in? If Jesus was thought of this way, if he was called this, why do we expect to be called any better? Why do we expect to be liked by the world? Why do we expect people to love us? So what are we to do with all this? How do we prepare for persecution? First, it's what Paul warned Timothy of in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It simply repeats what we've already seen this morning here in Matthew 10. We remind ourselves of this because we shouldn't be shocked when it comes. But what do we do when it comes? Well, there's many things we've discussed in the past couple of weeks. One, back in 16, we were reminded to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And those two things are to be done simultaneously together. You aren't just as shrewd as a serpent, and you aren't just as innocent of a dove. You're to do both of those things. We need to practice praying for our persecutors. Pray for them by name. Begin studying Scripture or continue studying Scripture to have a well-supplied reservoir from which the Holy Spirit will draw when we are called upon to give a response in the midst of persecution. Are you studying Scripture regularly so that you are filling this reservoir that the Spirit will then use in the time of need? 
How else do you prepare? Well, do you, are you practicing being a servant and a slave to others? Are you putting others' needs before your own? Are you thinking lowly enough of yourself? And I'm not just talking about doing it with other believers. That's a little bit easier. Are you doing it with those that dislike you, that hate you, that make your life difficult? That's where it's hard. Are you working hard to keep your behavior excellent, evaluating your life to ensure that anytime you're suffered, you're attacked, it is for the right reason? Are you ensuring that your life is not a distraction from the gospel? And then remember the end. And don't just think of it abstractly. Study and look at what Scripture has to say about it. We often think of heaven in this abstract way. Scripture has a lot to say about the realities, the physicality of heaven and eternity. Study it. Learn about it. So that you might echo with Paul who said, I do not consider the sufferings of this present age worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. There's more we'll see in coming weeks as Jesus returns to the topic of suffering. But this begins to help us as we prepare for the suffering that is promised to us. May we keep these things in mind. May we put them into practice so that we would endure to the end. Hopefully we would not even falter as Cranmer did near the end of his life. But we would remain steadfast and faithful So it would be said of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words this morning. We thank you for the preparation and the heads up you give us regarding suffering and persecution. That you haven't left us in doubt about the fact that it will come. And that you've given us tools and means of preparing and remaining steadfast in the midst of it. Christ, we thank you for you humbling yourself for us, enduring such hostility and hatred by sinners, humbling yourself, becoming a servant of all, laying your life down on the cross. May we look to that. May we remember your suffering when things are hard for us and help us put it in perspective. Pray these things in your name. Amen.